today's message is not going to be very long, I don't suspect. Um, Holy Spirit, do whatever you want. But today's message is not meant to be that long because it's, very, it's a very simple question. It's a very simple uh, declaration that I have for you today. Um, we are going through the book of Colossians. As we go through the book of Colossians, Paul's reminding the Colossian church of the fullness found in Christ alone. Um, it's not that the fullness found in Christ is comparable to the fullness you can find in other avenues of life. It's that only fullness can be found in Jesus. Only this life that is life more abundant, Christ calls it, can be found in him. That there is no alternative route to God. There's no alternative route to heaven. There's no alternative route to holiness or peace or, 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 or victory other than through Jesus Christ. And so that is the fullness we are seeking. Many of us, especially in our country, are very empty. And we have been for quite some time. If you want to know why um, somebody is so adamant or gung-ho about the politician you don't like, I can guarantee you it's because they find fullness or a, or a variation of it in that person. They offer hope. They offer uh, peace. They offer change. They offer something that, that they themselves can't conjure up. And so if it's not the politician, then it's the job. And if it's not the job, it's the relationship. If it's not the relationship, it's the hobby. You know, people spend thousands of dollars on hobbies, not because it's not because just because it's fun. I mean, it is, but it's also a, a, a variation of fullness. But it's a fullness that always leaves us wanting to the point where we will spend the thousands of dollars on the hobby just to grow bored with it. Because that fullness found therein is, is, is temporary. It's fleeting. It's like a vapor. And so we were built for fullness, and that fullness is found in Jesus alone. And that's what Paul is writing to the Colossian church. They had people come in who tried to change the gospel, and it was subtle at first to where five, ten years down the line, the, the, the gospel has been skewed. And now things like Gnosticism, mysterious, secret, hidden knowledge only a select few can know, that's the key to the gospel. Or Judaism, the, the celebration of festivals and new moons and, and all things Jew, that's the key to Christianity. That's the key to living a, a, a sanctified or a saved life. And Paul's got to write back to him. Paul's got to tell him from prison, he's got to write a letter and send it with a, a man named Epaphras to, to change the church to remind them, to bring them back to the beginning and to the, the very essence of what the gospel is. That in Christ alone, he is first, foremost, the word Paul uses is preeminent. Before all things, all things were made by him, through him, and for him. And so what we end up talking about today is something we call nominal Christianity. Nominal meaning in name only. There are a lot of Christians today who are Christians by name only. Jesus said this in John 8 and 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, the freedom that Jesus purchased for us brings the opportunity for fullness. We've been released from our shackles that we might freely worship our Lord and Savior and Creator. 
Jesus said, you will know the truth and that truth, the truth shall set you free or the truth will set you free. There's great freedom to be found in Jesus. That word as Americans, I mean, we, we understand, we've been taught that word since we could talk that the right, the freedom that we have in this country that is unparalleled throughout the rest of the world. But I'm here to tell you that pales in comparison to what Jesus offers us. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, uh, excuse me, verse 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, now underline, highlight, whatever you do in your Bible, this is where we're going to start. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is good, pure, and holy. And all I'm asking today as the pastor and shepherd of this place or the, the, the under-shepherd under you, Lord, is that your word would be exactly what it is, powerful, truth, life changing lord that it wouldn't it wouldn't just fall on deaf ears or just be filled with head knowledge that this would change us in jesus name we pray amen so there's there's jesus's words about the truth setting us free truth in and of itself is very freeing right when you get the truth finally maybe somebody's lied to you and they've and they've told you the truth it might anger you but it's also very freeing it's like oh i finally came to to the truth you know, there is um, there's the 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 Netflix documentary, The Making of a Murderer, about Stephen Avery and his plight, and you know his his alleged false accusation of being a murderer. And so many people are caught up in this uh, documentary, um, not because they care about justice, they just want they want to know what truly happened. Like that's what grips people. There's so many things that just oh, like th this and that, and there's evidence, but then there's evidence on this, and we just want the truth. You know, recently, I think it's ABC put out a miniseries about the O.J. Simpson trial. Why do we still care about that? Because we don't feel like we got the truth. You know, we're, we're so adamantly angry at politicians because we feel as though they're not giving us the truth. Just tell us the truth. Let us, let us know what the truth is, that liberation. We're seeking that. You know, maybe you've lied. Maybe you're the one who hasn't told the truth, and then you finally do, and as much as it might bring guilt or shame or condemnation, it feels so good to just get that off your shoulders, that get that burden off of you. Sometimes you get to a point where you finally share the truth, and you're like, why did I ever lie in the first place? Why did I, why did I not just tell the truth to begin with? So on a, on a physical plane, let's put it that way, the truth does very much set you free. But what Jesus is referencing and what Paul is referencing and what the gospel is all about is not just truth in general, but the truth that Jesus is. The truth is that Jesus is God. He's not just a man who became God. He's not just a pious or a holy man, a good teacher or a rabbi. He is God incarnate of the flesh. He was both man and God. That he lived a sinless life died a sinner's death on a cross that we will celebrate in just a few weeks. 
laid down his life for his sheep, that's us, and then took his life back up again. Not only did he die for your sins, but conquered sin and death, purchasing for us eternity. Now, some of you marvel at the plan of God. Like, why did God do it that way? You know, i got to be honest with you. The plan of God sometimes is just too much for my futile mind to comprehend. But I rest in the fact that God has done what he has said that he would do. And now we have this great promise, not that, not just that Jesus conquered death, but that he has sent his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to fill us, to live the life that Christ has died to purchase for us. And that one day, Christ will return to take his church home. Both the living and the dead, everyone who has died in faith, everyone who is alive in faith, will go to be with Jesus forever. He will be our God, we will be his people. It's not just about going to heaven, it's about being reconnected completely with the one who has saved you. So, we'll talk about this in a moment. If, if the idea of worshiping Jesus on a Sunday morning is too much for you, I want you to contemplate heaven where, where we will worship him, worship him forever and ever and ever. I want you to see that, that what we're trying to do here on a Sunday morning is a very shadow glimpse of what we will do forever. And so if you are struggling with worship on Sunday, um, let's get that corrected here before we spend all of eternity there. And, and, and truth be told, we'll be changed, twinkly of an eye, all of that. Um, our bodies will be different and, and our worship will be complete. But I want you to understand what you're aiming for and shooting for. And that brings us back to the idea of nominal Christians. Nominal means in name only. Some people are very afraid. Oh, the church is dying. It's shrinking, blah, blah, blah. It is. If you look at all the numbers of your mainline Protestant churches, um, even non-denominational churches, I mean, they're, they're just dwindling. And pastors, they're, they're quitting at something like 1,500 pastors a month. It, more are quitting than are starting every, every month or every, uh, every year. That's bad news in a sense. As a Christian, as a pastor, it doesn't worry me. Because what I'm seeing is not spirit-filled Christians falling away, being seduced by you know, the enemy, seduced by Satan and the lust of the flesh and all that. What I'm seeing is nominal Christians going, you know what, I've been faking this for so long, why am I doing this anymore? I'm just going to walk away because I was never really here to begin with. You know, it brought me back in, you know, decades past, it brought me some respect. You know, it was being part of a congregation, uh, especially one in good standing. It brought me some benefits to my, it brought some benefits to my status, but that's kind of gone away. You know, there's no real um, advantage to being here if I'm not really invested, so I'm just walking away. Pastors who weren't truly called to begin with or pushed into something they were never called to do, they're burning out and falling away because they were never meant to be there in the first place. Um, it's not my hope that nominal Christians would walk away. That's not what I want. I want them to become actual Christians. So if you find yourself in that category where, you know, I'm a Christian when I come to church, but then I leave church and I'm everything but... You might be a nominal Christian. I could do a whole Jeff Foxworthy bit. You know, you might be a nominal Christian. You know, I could do that. Um, but here's all you have to do. You just have to be honest with yourself. What, what do I truly believe? Why do I believe this? Do I believe this because my friends do? Do I believe this because I was told to? Do I believe this because in this I see the truth? God is incapable 
of lying. He is the very essence of truth. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. His very nature is to lie continuously. When he tempts Jesus in the desert, somehow he twists God's word into a lie. We've seen people in our own generation use the word of God to lie to the people. Send me your money and you will be blessed. Give me money for this so that you can be blessed by God in this way. And we just see people taking the word of God, twisting it and contorting it, and lying to the people. But in God, there is no lying. James says that he's the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to, due to change. He doesn't shift and move and, and, and be anything than what he truly is all the time. Hebrews 8, I believe, says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 6 and 18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. That is, he is incapable of doing that because he is all truth all the time. And we love that in one sense, but when God is truthful to us, says that we are sinners because of our sin, we might not care too much for that. When he tells us to love our enemies, we might not like that truth. But he's truth nonetheless. The gospel is truth. There is very few people who doubt the legitimacy of, or that doubt it um, with any kind of valid doubt, that the word of God was indeed written and, and kept the way that it has been for millennia. It has been studied and scrutinized over and over and over again. And for every person who goes through the scriptures to disprove God and disprove Jesus, they, they more often than not come out as Christians themselves. Even great minds like C.S. Lewis going to just, to just prove once and for all this, this, this silly Christianity is nothing but a bunch of, uh, of made-up stuff, they themselves become Christians. The story of Jesus, people, people who doubt the existence of Jesus, they themselves, they find them, themselves in the minority. It has been proven time and time again that he indeed was a man who existed some 2,000 years ago. And they might doubt his divinity, him being, him being God, and that's their prerogative to doubt in that way. But everything that we've been taught and told and shown in scriptures um, comes back to the fact that God is truth. We see in the Old Testament and some of the New Testament prophecies fulfilled the way that God promised them to be given. We see things like Jesus being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver uh, prophesied in the Old Testament, that he'd be the Prince of Peace, that he'd be uh, Emmanuel, God with us, that he'd be born in Bethlehem at the time that he was born. All these things confirmed in Jesus. And so we as Christians, we look at the, the prophecies that yet to be that are yet to be fulfilled and go, okay, those are just going to happen someday too. We don't have any reason to doubt. But here's the thing about the truth. What do you say about the truth? I have five or six cookbooks. Anybody have cookbooks in their house? I think they come with the house sometimes. You just, you have five or six cookbooks. You've bought some. You were given some. Others just magically appeared. Um, all those are true. All those recipes in those books, the how to make the cookies and the cake and the and the pasta and this and that and the ro all true, right? But I'll tell you now that those five or six cookbooks I have, they sit up in a shelf, and that truth just sits right up there. It doesn't change my life at all. That truth, as true as it is, putting the flour and the eggs and the butter and the this and the that to make the recipe, it's all true. 
but yet there it sits in the cupboard changing nothing in my life so my challenge to you today the, the challenge of God's word is what is the truth to you is the truth of the gospel of Jesus just something that sits in your shelf does not affect your life I mean you know it's there you know it's true you'd never you'd never speak ill of it you never go back against it but it doesn't change your life as I read the Gospels, I read the New Testament and the Old Testament both, when people meet God, they are never the same. When they meet the risen Savior, their life goes from one way to another. When they are born again, it is as though they have been born again. What does the truth do to you? Let me ask you a series of questions. How does the truth change your service and your deeds or actions? When you serve somebody, is it for your gain and benefit? Husbands, when you, when you serve your wife, is it because you want something from her? When you're at work, are you serving your boss just so you get the paycheck? And that's not a bad system. That's what you agreed to. But is that what you're doing? Because your non-Christian friends are doing, or coworkers are doing the same exact thing. If kids were in here, I'd ask them, how are you honoring your mother and father? Non-Christians are doing that all day long. How are you doing that? How does it change your service? Does your service, your deeds, your actions look like everybody else's? Then maybe the truth hasn't changed you. See, these are the questions I want you to ask yourself to challenge you, not to doubt your salvation. We're not talking about salvation. Your salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus, and you can't add to that or take away from it. That's not what this is about. This is about living out the life that Christ has died to give you. You can be a really, really bad example of Christianity, still be saved. The Bible talks about us being rewarded for our deeds at the judgment, you know, and, and, and the chaff being burnt up and all that, the, the, the stuff that didn't matter just blowing away in the wind. We're not talking about your salvation. We're talking about what you're doing now that you have been saved. If your salvation is as big and as, in the best sense of the word, as catastrophic to your old life, as the Bible says it is, then there should be some change in how you do stuff, right? How does the truth change your mouth and your words? Do you sound like everybody else in the world? Do your words reflect hope found in Jesus, or do your words reflect everything else that everybody is saying, the hopelessness, the despair, the, the hope in the false things? Is your, is your mouth filled with obs obscene talk? Are you, are you, is your mouth filled with rubbish? I mean, this is more than just bad words, good words. This is, this is how are you using this instrument God has given you? James talks about how with the same mouth we bless God and then we curse others. It's like fresh water and salt water trying to come out of the same hole. This doesn't happen. It's one or the other. And while we may not attain perfection this side of heaven, that's our aim and goal to be made perfect in Christ, to be sanctified by him, and that our mouths would be given over to him to be used by him alone. Now, in all of this, if you find yourself failing, and, no, oh, I said a bad word, or, I, or you know, I didn't use any bad words, but I wasn't edifying my brother or sister, there's forgiveness to be found. This isn't about filling you with guilt so that you'll follow Jesus. This is about finding freedom in Christ to know that you can even do these things. 
for some of you, you've been you've been speaking like a sailor. You've been talking like a sailor since you were five. I fall into that category. Soon as I got away from my parents, I learned and perfected the art of swearing. And you look at me in my cherub-like demeanor and my fun little beard, and you're like, "No way, Tony! No, seriously, I could I could go toe to toe with the best of them until Jesus got a hold of my heart. Then it was like, wow, you know." That's not how he wants me to talk. That that does not glorify him. Makes me sound like the world. And I still fail. Fail for good reasons, like the stubbing of the toe, that type of thing. Fail for bad reasons, like just being an idiot. But nonetheless, has God taken... Do you feel that conviction when you do that? Like you've, like you've betrayed your God, who has changed you. I mean, has the truth changed your mouth and your words? Has it changed your giving? My giving is affected by the truth. If, if the truth is not setting me free, then I probably still have a hoarder mentality about my time and my talents and my treasure. My time, my talents, my treasure. But when you meet Jesus and you realize he's purchased your life, you say, oh, wait a minute. This is his time, talent, and treasure, and he lets me use some of it to pay my bills, and he lets me use some of my time to do fun things, but then also my time is called to help and to serve other people. My time, my, 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 my treasure, if you will, is used to uh, help others who are in need. My talent, whatever it might be, I might use that for the, the, the church or just for people in general who just, you know, want to be blessed. One of my talents is playing guitar. I play the guitar for my kids. They love it, sharing my talents with them. You know, bringing here on a Sunday morning, Ben hurt his hand, Mike couldn't be here, so okay, I'm, I'm going to play guitar. I can use that talent for here this time. You know, some of you have a talent to uh, make food or to serve and do things like that, and you use that in that way. But when you look at your service and your giving and your mouth and everything else, hold yourself up to other people. I know that sounds like counter to everything we've ever taught you, but here's what I mean is, Jesus said things like, love your enemy... Um, even the, the sinner or the tax collector or you know the Pharisee, even they love people who love them. Now we, it's easy to love the people who love us, but what about the ones who hate us? So see how the world hates the enemy, and now we have to do something different. No, not a big fan of Donald Trump. Just say it right out there. Never have been. Um, not scared of him becoming president because God appoints who he wants. And America will get the leader they deserve. That part scares me. But I'm not called to hate him. I'm called to pray for him. Even more so should he become the commander-in-chief, right? Because Romans 13, God places leaders where he wants them, uses them for his knowledge, his use, what he, what he wants to use them for. And I marvel when Paul says that because when he said that, Caesar Nero was going around using Christians as, uh, as playthings for lions in stadiums as the Roman people watched them be killed. Paul saying, pray for that man. God placed him there for a reason. Nero was, was dipping Christians in, in wax and oil and then using them, lighting them on fire to light his garden so he can go for a stroll at night. Paul saying, that man was placed there for a reason. Pray for him. Don't hate him. You obviously don't have to love what he does, but don't hate him. Don't be like the world. Be like the people Christ has called you to be. 
So whoever our president ends up being, you pray for them whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not. It doesn't justify what anybody's done, but it is part of your calling as a Christian. That was my next point. How does the truth change your politics? How does the truth change your love? Once again, easy to love those who love you. What about those that are hard to love, though? What about those that just eh, always want something? They're, they're always needing something. You're like, I don't want to. I hope they don't come over. They knock on the door. You're hiding. Like, oh, gosh. Don't move. Don't make a noise. You know? <laughs> Too much giggling in this section over here. Um, they send you the text. Oops, I forgot to respond. You know, that type of a thing. What about those people? God's called you to love them. What about what about your neighbor? God has called you to love your neighbor. That's sometimes really hard because sometimes our neighbors play loud music and work on their car at 2 o'clock in the morning and just have parties at the worst possible time. See, one of the things you guys don't understand culturally about my life is growing up in California, uh, my Hispanic side of the family, any excuse to have a party – uh, they took advantage of. And so you'd go to this party and there'd be beer everywhere and people would be drunk and be like, what's going on? Oh, my one-year-old just had a birthday party. And it's not just, I'm not, you know, I'm Mexican. I get to say this, I guess. But my point is this. That's the way it was growing up. Then I move and I become a property manager and now I have to manage these these families that come along and, they, and there was a, a, a like a common place house where people could rent and have parties and they have parties into the night loud music and it wasn't just the mexican families it was all the families every family and god's called me to love them and god's called you to love your neighbor and maybe your neighbor is the guy you work with or maybe your neighbor is your spouse or maybe your neighbor is your boss Loving your neighbor and serving them and your deeds towards them have nothing to do with justifying what they've done. Some of you have been hurt by those very people I mentioned, and that doesn't make it right. Those are still wrongs that will be corrected by Jesus, that will be made right by him. But in the meantime, how are you going to respond to the truth? Is it going to change you, or are you going to just ignore it and have it be up in the shelf, knowing that it's true but never having your life affected by it? Lastly, how does the truth change the way that you see God? Some, and I'll say they're well-meaning, but I use that term very loosely, some will try to make all religions the same so that nobody gets mad at each other. So that we can all live here. God, you know, All these different variations of God are really just the same God. It's like spokes on a wheel, different spokes that all lead to the same center. And the Bible says that God is a jealous God. He's not a God who, who shares his platform with anybody else. That he is the one true God. He's the Almighty. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who was and is and is to come. The Bible is very distinct and clear that though people might be well-intentioned, they might have good, uh, good thoughts and ideas, what they're doing is betraying the truth. And so they'll disregard the truth to keep peace amongst the people. How does the truth of the gospel of Jesus change how you view God? See, for me as a Christian, what that means is, is now Jesus is God. He's not a demigod. He's not one of many gods. He is the God, the one true God who, in Colossians, Paul say, all things were made through him and by him and for him. 
Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he goes on to tell his disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, Jesus was crucified not just because he was a rebel. Some people like to paint him in that picture. What he did was rebellious, but he wasn't a rebel for the sake of rebellion. He put himself, he, he proclaimed himself to be on the same level as God. Not just, not just there's God and there's me, but I and God are one. That, that they are one and the same while distinct in one way, all one in, in another sense. You know, you read the baptism of Jesus and you see Jesus, the Son of God, in the water. You hear the Father proclaiming from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And you see the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. You see this picture of the Trinity all working together in this, in this rare moment where we get to see all three working together. The truth to change your perspective about God, to change your perspective about sin. Though we might be sinners and we get ourselves caught in sin, we should not look at sin and say, oh yeah, that's acceptable. Oh, that's God's okay with that now. You know, He was mad about that, now He's not. Same yesterday, today, and forever. What God didn't like then, He doesn't like now. And guess what? He won't like it 500 years from now either. So the things we get caught up in, repent of them, seek forgiveness for them, but don't justify them. Just call it what it is. Lord, that was sin, and I was stupid, and I shouldn't have done that. And, and, and I hope I don't face the consequences for this, but if I do, may I find your mercy and grace. This was the prayer of David when he sinned with Bathsheba. He understood there was going to be consequences. He still repented. He never said, well, I, I, I had to do it. I saw her naked on the, on the balcony there bathing. I just had, I had to have her. He doesn't justify it. He repents calls it what it is says it's wrong shouldn't have done it so still suffers the consequences but finds forgiveness in god one of the things i teach my children and i pray you're teaching your children too is that in god there is infinite forgiveness i mean he is just a forgiving loving god he knows what he's dealing with we're fragile clay pots and we break from time to time but we are not free from the consequences of the choices that we make you know, there are people still suffering because of the sin of men like Adolf Hitler. Generations later, decades later, they're still suffering. Still tormented, still still whole families altered and changed because men and women were taken to these concentration camps and brutally murdered. Whole family trees have been altered forever because of the sin of one man. You may be free of the condemnation and the guilt, but you may not be free of the consequences. And the consequences of sin are far-reaching. The, the first sin we still feel the effects of. Contemplate that for a moment. Some 7,000 years ago, a man and a woman sinned in a garden, and we still, we still are suffering the consequences because of it. Don't, don't look at sin and justify it. Admit it. Repent of it. Ask forgiveness of it. Walk away from it. And let the Lord deliver you from it. So the last thing I want to do is just give you an example of a really good Christian. And the last person I want to use is myself. I was joking with the guys this morning for church about being perfect and things like that. It was a big joke and I was being silly. And I'm the last person I'd ever hold up 
um, as an example of a changed Christian. And truth be told, all of us, I think we all are very bad examples. So I wouldn't use any of us. And that's not to say anything bad. If you're offended, I'm sorry. I apologize. But I think there's better people we could use. And I think the people that we find in the Word of God, God has used them as an example, so we get to use them as an example. It's kind of like creative license. We get to use them because God has given them to us as an example. And so the one I want to use today is found in the book of Acts. It's a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And you could turn there if you'd like. If not, just write it down in your notebook and, and read the story later. But Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it comes on the heels of the murder of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. He had the audacity and the gall to stand up and preach the gospel in a crowd that did not want to hear the gospel. And so they stoned him to death. Now, in Washington and Colorado, that means something a little different. Here, in this context, they took large rocks and they hurled them at him till he died says that when he was dying, he looked up to heaven, he prayed for forgiveness for the people, saw the Lord, died. First person to be killed as a Christian for Christianity. And there was a man on the sidelines named Saul of Tarsus saying, yes, yes, this is what we should be doing. Yes, he, he went around, he had permission from the, 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 the religious leaders to do such a thing. People were laying their coats at his feet, they were honoring and revering him. He thought he was doing God's will. Now, if we saw that today, and we do see that today, we would call for the, the head of Paul, wouldn't we, or Saul? We, we, no, we shouldn't be doing that. The ACLJ would be all over it, and, and we'd be calling and fasting all this other business because this man's killing the church. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, but still Saul, breathe, uh, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the, uh, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, people who followed Christ, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, let me just put this in our own vernacular. Imagine there being a guy who came around to all the pastors, local pastors, and said, hey, can we have your permission to kill non-believers, to imprison them, to drag them out of their homes, to take their possessions, and, and just get rid of them because they're, they're non-conformists? That's, that's what Saul was doing. And the synagogue leaders were like, yeah, let's do that, because we don't like this whole way, this Christianity, this Christ that people are proclaiming. Now, when he went on his way, this is Saul, he, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the man that God called to write two-thirds of the New Testament, to start church after church after church, to take the gospel to more places than we ever could, and who today we stand on the shoulders of in the preaching of the gospel. It says that in the word that um, Paul was a man breathing threats of murder, and yet God took this man and changed him completely. 
Do you see the drastic change? The, the two men almost seem, it almost seems like two men. Saul, the man who killed Christians, who becomes Paul, the man who makes Christians or to, preaches the gospel to make Christians. See, this is the type of change, the radical change that the gospel brings. As soon as this light blinded Paul, he knew who he was talking to. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Say, let that be, just side note, let that be a cause for rejoice when the church is persecuted. It's not just the church being persecuted, it's Jesus. He tells Paul, the people you're killing, you're killing me. They're a part of me. And they, he meets Jesus and everything changes. To the point where Peter's got to stand up and kind of vouch for him. Because obviously everybody's heard of this Saul of Tarsus who's killing everybody. Next thing you know, they're inviting him to be the guest preacher at the church. You know, and they can't give any accolades. Well, you know, this is Paul, and he used to kill Christians, and now he's going to preach the gospel to you. Like, that's a really hard sell. Peter's got to step up and say, no, no, he, he's an apostle called by Christ. He's legit. He's not that same guy anymore. He's not killing Christians anymore. He loves Jesus now. And indeed, his life was changed. So maybe you're not Paul. Maybe you weren't killing Christians before you met Jesus. And maybe after Jesus, meeting Jesus, you're not called to write books of the New Testament and start churches and things like that. I get that. I don't want you to see that. I want you to see the drastic change found in Paul. And you see the same drastic change found in Peter. You see the same drastic change found in David. You see the same drastic change found in the other apostles. You see it in James, who were studying the little brother of Jesus before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He thinks his brother's crazy. He tells them, along with his other brothers and sisters, please stop talking. Please stop telling people you're the son of God. Please come home and let's talk about this. Like Jesus is the crazy uncle that won't shut up. Like That's how James treats his brother. But then Jesus dies, conquers death, and James is changed completely to where he himself writes a book of the Bible. He's used to, to start churches. Paul will say in the book of Galatians that he's a pillar of the church along with Peter and John. If you have met Jesus, there will be drastic change in your life. But it won't just be, oh, i got to change my habits. Christ will come in and rearrange everything. And if that hasn't happened, you might be a nominal Christian rather than an authentic Christian. And it's not my job to judge. Anybody who comes to that door and tells me they're a Christian, I just say, okay, I believe you. I believe you. i, I got no reason to doubt you at this point. I might see fruit later. Lying, stealing, cheating, that type of thing. And I'll go, wait a second. You say one thing, I see another thing. But for the most part, I just take people's word for it. But God isn't like that. God doesn't just take your word for it. God chooses to change you. And so with the truth comes change. And if you have not seen change in your life, then maybe the truth hasn't set you free. And that's the prayer for you today. So let's stand. Of all the men and women who meet Jesus in the New Testament, none of them walk away the same. Except for the people who don't follow him. You, know, you got the rich young ruler, he walks away. We don't know anything about him. You have thousands, multitudes who come just to get a, 
a healing or something, but then they walk away from him. But those who stick with Jesus, they change. The woman by the well, the people who brought their children to be healed, and they, they were changed. I want that change. Do you welcome that change in your life today? Do you want God to change you like that? Because in that, that's where you find the fullness. That's where you find the completeness and the satisfaction. We're going to pray together. As you're doing this, let me give you a word of warning. Satan will use this message as a word of condemnation. Look at how, look at how you're not like the other Christians. Look at, how, look at how bad you are. You'll hear judgment and accusation. That's not the Lord. What the Lord is offering you is deliverance. What the Lord is offering you is freedom. You know, when you read about when you read about the uh, the Passover meal, it's a family meal. When you learn about communion, it's a familial thing. And so I like everybody to come up and take communion together, like we're a family. All right, so we're gonna pray. Father God, as we take this communion. Um, and as those who are still being served, Lord, I apologize. I ask that um, that we would remember the blood and the body that was broken for us. You don't call us to remember this so that we feel condemnation. You ask us to remember this, remembering that we've been delivered and freed, that the shackles we were once found in, the slavery we were once in, has now been lifted, that we are now servants of the Most High God. That's all because of what your Son has done. So as we take this wine and we take this this unleavened bread, Lord. May we remember your sacrifice. The more than you're just your sacrifice, but your conquering of death. The great hope that we find in you alone. May you be blessed today, Lord. May you bring change in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.